I invite you to take your Bibles today and turn to Romans 4. I will be preaching a, a topical sermon today in regard to baptism. And uh, so we will be t- uh, heading to several passages of Scripture. I won't necessarily ask you to turn to them. They will be up on the screen behind me. But we will spend some time in Romans 4 today. So it would be a, a good parking place for you. Uh, the title of the message, Why Baptism? Following the service today, our church is going to have a, a baptism service. It's not the first we've had this year. It won't be the last we've had this year. Well, we will have this year as we have another one likely coming up in June. But I felt led of the Lord as I was preparing uh, the sermon to direct our hearts towards the concept of baptism. <clears throat> Excuse me. And to address this topic itself, reminding us of the importance of the ordinance, why it matters. And this message is particularly important for our time, for our location, for our culture today. We find among the churches in the area uh, pretty dramatic disagreements with regard to the nature of baptism. Its purpose, does it matter? Why it should be done? Should it be done? When should it be done? And these are questions which are important to answer. It's important that we have reasons for what we do. We're not always going to do all the same things or believe all the same things, and that's okay. Uh, When it comes to certain elements of of faith and practice, uh, we're not always going to land in the exact same area, but we all ought to be seeking the same God and the same truths. And as we do so, certainly the particulars of, of foundational doctrine will be the same. And then we will have those reasons. Uh, Rosie talked about how important when she when she considers um, the concepts of assurance of uh, of salvation, or when she uh, 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 considers the concepts of assuring oneself of, of the love of God, or or assuring oneself that God is in control. We go back to the Word of God, and we stand upon the Word of God, and the Word of God is our assurance. And that's why it's so important that that people have the Word of God so that they can hear it, so that they can read it, so that they can learn it, so that they can know it, so they can have a foundation upon which which to stand. And so the question is, where do we go? And how do we understand baptism? Why do we do it? Why do we do it the way we do it? Why is there such disagreement among people as to why we do it? And that's what I'd like to discuss today today. And we'll understand as we answer some of these questions just what today is about and why indeed it is so important. Now, as I preach this message today, excuse me, I've been fighting a cold for what, three weeks now, and it just won't go away. But as as I preach this message today, um, the last time I preached a message directly in regard to baptism was August 30th of uh, 2015. Uh, The title of the sermon was About Water Baptism. I'm going to uh, rehash some of that today. Some of the things I'm going to say today I didn't say then. Some of the things I said in that message I'm not going to say today. So if you would like more information or or more well-rounded understanding of the concept, I would encourage you to get onto um, LegacyBaptistChurch.net. Go to the archives page. You notice uh, maybe it was four or five months ago, things changed a little bit. There's an interactive preaching menu, and uh, I only have the most recent series now on the interactive preaching menu. It was getting a little bogged down uh, in in browsers. It was starting to slow down a little bit. So now just below that menu, there's an archives page. It's in big blue letters. Click to go to the archives page. I try to make it it big. Um, And that page will take you to the archives where you'll have every message I've preached since about three months into the beginning of my ministry here uh, nearly six years ago. So it's all there, uh, categorized by book, and then at below all those books, 
is a topical index. And I have various sermons categorized by topic. And under baptism, there will be... What am I looking at? Oh, yes, please. Thank you. Um, and under baptism, there will be two messages right now. This will be the third. There's one about infant baptism. There's one about uh, water baptism as a whole. And then... Thank you, Sarah. And then there is the one that will be up um, soon uh, in regard to baptism. So that will help you as we try to glean a greater understanding of baptism and where we stand on it. We are a, a Baptist church, and we are, we are not Baptist first and last. We are Christians first and last. We're Baptist by conviction. We're Baptist because we have identified in the Baptist distinctives that which we believe the Bible reflects. And that's well and that's good. There are other people that are not Baptist that believe similar things and they don't put... That's fine. It doesn't matter. But we are Baptist by conviction. But that has caused no small stir among the people in the area. Some folks that have come in, particularly in a deep and heavy Lutheran and Catholic area. And so we're going to try to answer some questions today that might be relevant to encourage you to help you understand where the church stands, why we stand there, and perhaps uh, to help you understand better where you should stand in regard to some of these issues, or help you understand how to articulate them for others. So as we begin today, I'd like to begin by answering that simple question, what is baptism? And the word baptize in English comes from the Greek word baptizo, <coughs> excuse me, which literally means to immerse or to submerge something or someone. And we talked about this on a Tuesday night not long ago, that the, <clears throat> the word in and of itself does have the connotation of submerging. However, it is oftentimes, even in the Bible, used figuratively. It's used to speak of an event or a commitment in the way that you would wholeheartedly, I guess you could say if you've ever seen a young kid and it's their first time on the diving board and they get up to the diving board and they're not quite sure and they kind of, they, they, they duck down and then they get up and then they walk back and then they kind of get forward again and then they duck down again and you're waiting for them to jump and then they finally take that leap. That idea of, of committing yourself wholly, you can't half commit to jumping off a diving board, right? You've seen some people half commit to jumping off a diving board and it really doesn't end well. They end up hitting the diving board and then flopping off to the side or whatever the case is. It doesn't end well. You have to, at some point, you just got to take the jump, right? And that's the idea of baptizo. It, it, it's, it's not just the idea of submerging, but it's the idea of you are fully committing. You are um, placing yourself wholly. Throughout the history, baptism has been, uh, baptizing of people has been uh, used in many cultures around the world for many different reasons as a sign of renewal, as a sign of regeneration, a symbolic gesture of the end of one thing and the beginning of something new. And so it is with baptism in Christ's church that it is also a sign, an outward symbol of an inward renewal, an inward regeneration that has already taken place. And what I'd like us to do this morning is kind of walk through a bit of a thought process on baptism. And I want it to be semi-organic. So we'll walk through it and we'll think about things. And basically, I wrote the sermon in the manner of my thinking. So as I was thinking, well, what's the foundation? What's next? What's next? What questions might I ask here? That's how I tried to write the sermon. And I hope that it'll be helpful to you to kind of think about it in this organic or this natural way. And what I'd like us to do to start off is to understand the relationship between baptism and salvation. The difference between baptism and salvation. The difference forms an important foundation upon which much of what we believe rests. And, and so we'll begin with the basics. 
And the basics, the, the, the most basic is this. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Salvation is and must be without exception by grace alone. Don't miss this because so few people today truly understand the concept of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Being given something that I do not deserve. If I earned it in any way, it's not grace. If I deserve it in any way, it's not grace. If I qualify myself to receive it in any way, it's not grace. And here's an important one. If I incur any obligation from it, it's not grace. And to understand the relationship of salvation to external symbols, and to understand this concept of grace as opposed to work, you're there in Romans chapter 4. Let's read verses 1 through 8. The Bible says this, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute Sin. We have in these verses a very clear statement of the reality of the gospel. That from Abraham through to David and unto today, the gospel has always been the same and it has always been received the same way. Abraham never could glory before God because before God he was unclean. Therefore, if Abraham was justified, and the Bible says he was, it certainly wasn't by his own work. Because he was a sinner. When was it that Abraham was saved? According to the scriptures. Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 6. James tells us in James 2 verse 23. That Abraham was justified. He was declared righteous on the day that he believed the promise found in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. The Bible says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in mine house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir. But he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth. Abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Here it is. And he believed the Lord and it, and he counted it to him for righteousness. He counted it to him for righteousness. Abraham had faith in the promise of God and that faith was counted unto Abraham as his righteousness. Galatians and James both tell us this was the moment that imputed righteousness, that word to impute means to count or to reckon, that God reckoned Abraham righteous and did not reckon his sin upon him. When Abraham committed his heart to the truth that God would give him a seed from his own bowels, 
who would bring forth an innumerable number of inheritors. And this was speaking of the gospel. Galatians makes this clear. And the promise of Messiah. At that moment of belief, God legally declared Abraham righteous on the basis of his complete faith in the full promises of God, in the word of God, that one day Messiah would come through him as as an heir through his own bowels. And Romans 4 says David was the same way. As he quotes here in Romans 4, where he's actually quoting from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, where David writes this, a Psalm of David, Maskil. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. A maskil means it's a psalm of instruction. That's what the concept of the maskil is. It's a song, psalm of instruction. David is intending to instruct here. And what's he instructing? He's, instru- he's not praising. Now, he is praising, but that's not the purpose. The purpose of the psalm is to instruct. And he's instructing about imputed righteousness. He's instructing about the gospel. David declares a blessing, not upon the man who doesn't have iniquity. Aren't you thankful for that? (laughs) David was thankful for that. Because you know what? If it's a blessing upon those that don't have iniquity, then we're all done. We're cooked. David declares a blessing upon the man unto whom God does not impute, does not attribute, does not ascribe his iniquity. Blessed is the man whose iniquity is not counted against him. That's the blessing. And Paul uses the example of these two men in Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 to show that salvation was not given unto the man who works for it. Not to the man who deserves it, not to the man who earns it, but rather to the man who God graciously does not charge with the sin debt that he has already incurred. The man who believes God and it's imputed unto him for righteousness. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Messiah. In the days of Abram, in the days of David, that salvation was faith in God's revelation in regard to the future of Messiah. A full faith in the revealed word of God to the degree that God had revealed it. And as they sold themselves out to the revealed word of God, then it is, it's, it's, it's not really a spectrum. In other words, if I believe Everything that the word of God says, if I trust the word of God to the degree that he's revealed it, then I'm going to trust if he reveals more. And so if they had been there in the days of Messiah, they would have been those that would have believed. Though they existed thousands of years before, hundreds of years before. And in our day today, our faith is reckoned regarding the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That as we look back upon that which Jesus has done, upon the work that has been finished, we put our full faith in the finished work unto imputed righteousness. But the method has always been the same. Without effort, without work, without merit. Only belief and belief alone can save. If anything is added to faith, then it is no longer grace. Now, we continue in Romans chapter 4, and this is where we're going with this. How does faith relate to external ordinances? How does salvation relate to external ordinances? And in Romans chapter 4, we're not going to be looking explicitly at baptism. We're actually going to be looking at the Jewish rite of circumcision. 
And then we'll take that right and we'll transition it over to an understanding of baptism. We continue in Romans 4 and verses 9 and 10 tell us this. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? Was when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision. But in uncircumcision. So there were a number of Jews who would tell Paul, yes, of course, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Paul, we know that. Uh, Remember, he's writing to the church at Rome here. And he says, of course, that's true. But grace is only available to a few. Only available to those who have positioned themselves for grace. Only available to those who have been circumcised. And so have put themselves in a position where they are able to accept that grace. Or unto whom God has put in a position. Do you see the danger I mean, there are so many ways that, the, that that Christendom does this today. It's not just with circumcision or with infant baptism. Uh, but there are so many people who are saying only a certain subset of the world is positioned with the ability to receive God's grace. And it's just not biblical. It's just not biblical. So they say it's only available to those who qualify for grace through circumcision. That only those who are qualified by engaging in this external right can receive the blessedness of forgiveness. So Paul asks them, well then let's think about Abraham here for a moment. Was this blessedness of imputed righteousness given to Abraham when he was circumcised or or before he was circumcised? And when we look in the text, we find that Abraham was counted righteous in Genesis 15. Abraham was circumcised in Genesis 17. It was prior to his circumcision that the Lord imputed unto him righteousness, which means he was declared righteous outside of the external right. And notice then the role that circumcision played in Abraham's spiritual life in verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision. And what does he say that sign was? A seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. That word seal there literally means a signet. It's not a seal like like the sealing of the Holy Ghost, but a seal like the signet that you would put on an envelope to show that it's official, to, to, to show um, the proof of something, right? It was a seal, of the righteousness of faith, that that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. It was intended, circumcision was intended as an external signification of the faith that already existed. Now, what's interesting regarding the sign of circumcision is that it was really only in this first generation that the circum, that Abraham's circumcision was a seal of his own faith. Then he circumcised Isaac on the eighth day, and the circumcision of Isaac could not have been a a seal of Isaac's faith at eight days old. It was a seal instead of Abraham's faith. And then when Isaac circumcised Jacob, Jacob's circumcision was not a seal of Jacob's faith, a sign of Jacob's faith. It was a sign of Isaac's faith, that he would circumcise his son on the eighth day. And so it was a seal of the faith of the one who, of the father, when he circumcised the son, which I think is very interesting, particularly as, as again, if you've connected, if you've connected circumcision, if you were listening to that sermon that I preached uh, last year in August, that connects infant baptism to infant circumcision, um, you begin to see some interesting um, breakdowns of the parallels to what's done today through infant baptism. So, um, as we consider this, what's important here is what we see 
in what we see as the example of circumcision, an external act that was regarded as an outward sign of something that had already happened in Abraham, right? An outward seal of an inward decision that had already taken place. The decision in Genesis 15 to believe God. The sign, outward sign in Genesis 17, a seal of the faith, of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. So that's the idea of circumcision, an external, an, an external ordinance, an external rite. Now let's transition that over to baptism. Remember, baptism is our topic today. And so let's transition this idea over to baptism, and we'll do so through 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter is a book that speaks of the reality of suffering for the sake of righteousness that confronts the believer and the privilege which we have as believers to endure that suffering in faith and obedience to God. I'd like to pick up in 1 Peter 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, where the Bible says this, For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Now, we're not teaching this passage directly today, which is kind of a shame because it's deep and can be very confusing, what, what is being said here. We did go through this quite thoroughly on a Tuesday night, not too long ago, as we were studying through First Peter on Tuesday nights. But I gave you this context so that you can see what's going on here. He calls us, Peter calls us to be ready and willing to suffer for well-doing on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ has already suffered for us. The just suffered for the unjust. And so Jesus was put to death in the flesh that we might be made alive in the spirit. And it was through this quickening, this making alive that he preached to the spirits in prison. We're not going to get into that today. Which Peter says they were once disobedient in the days of Noah. And he uses that to transition into the, uh, the, the judgment account of Noah's flood. And so it was in the days of Noah, very few, indeed only eight of all the many who lived on the earth were saved. And Peter says they were saved by water. Which is interesting considering it was the water that was the judgment and the ark which bore them up. It's an interesting way for Peter to describe it, but it does make sense, because if you think about our salvation, the very judgment through which the world will be condemned to an eternity in the lake of fire, that same judgment poured out on Christ was our salvation. And so it is not that we are, we are saved from, from the judgment of our sin, but that doesn't mean that the judgment for our sin was not reckoned. It was only reckoned on Christ. In the same way, the flood affected everybody, only those that were in the ark, the ark took the judgment and bore them up. And that's the idea here of what Peter is saying. Those outside of the ark bore the consequences themselves. Those inside the ark, the ark lifted them up above the consequences. And so the judgment of God saves us through Christ just as it condemns the world through unbelief. And this is the context where we get into verses 21 and 22. The Bible says, The like figure, this is a figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. But notice the parenthetical, not the putting away 
of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, the angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Peter says that the account of Noah's ark is a picture of salvation. Now, let's talk about what baptism this is. Remember, we talked about baptism as a regeneration, a renewal, a renewal, an end of one thing, a beginning of another, and that it's used figuratively in the scriptures. Uh, Paul, Peter says here that the ark is a type of baptism. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2, that the cloud, uh, the pillar of cloud and the water which had parted, that the Israelites walked through when they came out of Egypt, was also a baptism. In each case, the people had a decision to make, whether to place their full faith in God's revealed word or to try it their own way. When Noah stepped into the ark, it was a physical manifestation of something that had already happened in his heart, right? As a matter of fact, when he built the ark, it was already a physical manifestation of what had already happened in his heart. The ark being built was a sign of the faith that, that compelled him to build it, right? When Israel walked through the Red Sea, when they followed the cloudy pillar, when they followed the pillar of fire, the pillar of fire and the Red Sea, when they stepped into that, that dry, on the dry land and across the Red Sea, that step was a manifestation of the faith that they already had in their hearts by which they took the step. The faith that compelled the step. Even so doth baptism save us. But notice he says not the washing away of the filth of the flesh. It's not the dunking in water itself that saves us. But rather it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. It is the thing that happens in the heart. It's the faith. Do you see the relationship? Do you see how we can relate this to what Paul was teaching in Romans chapter 4? How he says Abraham was saved and then he received this, the external right, the sign as a validation, as a seal of the faith that had already come through righteousness. Can you see how baptism is a very similar idea here? That Abraham was saved by faith through God's revealed word without circumcision. And you and I are saved by faith in God's revealed word without baptism and then are asked by God to submit to baptism as an evident public token of that faith. And so now with this in mind, we need to answer several questions here. And these are important. Who should be baptized? When should a person be baptized? How should a person be baptized? Who should be baptized? Well, the short answer, every person who is a professing believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized. And there are two parts to this. First, that you should be a believer. And second, that really baptized believers ought to be the consensus in the church. It ought to be every believer. To this point, we've compared baptism and circumcision, but this is where the comparisons must stop. In many circles, the comparisons continue. We've mentioned that already. People baptize their children. They go through the infant baptism ritual. And again, I mentioned um, that that is because of the... I want to use the word conflation, but I don't know that that will be well received. Um, because of the merging of ideas between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, and people merge them and say that the church has replaced Israel. And so because the church has replaced Israel, but the Bible clearly says that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, baptism replaces the, the, the rite of circumcision, so that where they circumcised on the eighth day, they now baptize children into the institutional church on the eighth day. But here's the problem with that. The church is not a physical institution. It's a spiritual institution. We are not a physical nation. We are a spiritual nation. And if the 
child was circumcised on the eighth day when entering into the physical covenant of the nation of Israel, well, then it would follow that we should be baptized, circumcised, ushered in, uh, given the sign of the covenant when we enter into the spiritual nation of the church. Not when we enter into our physical life, but when we enter into our spiritual life. That's when the baptism should take place, when we enter into the spiritual institution of the church, when we're, after we're saved. Now, I, preached, I mentioned I preached a message, I said August, it was July 24th of last year. As I mentioned, you can go topically in the archives to infant baptism, and you can find that message if you want to see how it is that misinterpretation has brought the church to these understanding of the church and Israel being muddied, and then how that led to infant baptism. It was a, a three-part series that I called Jewish Culture and Sound Doctrine that was preached uh, July of 2016. But as we look in the scriptures, the universal standard by which a person was called to be baptized was when they were ready to publicly profess that they had already identified with the message of the gospel. Consider in Acts chapter 2. We begin in verses 37 and 38 to be intellectually honest for context. The Bible says, now when they heard this, this was uh, the preaching on the day of Pentecost. When they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh Uh-oh, Pastor, you just contradicted yourself with Scripture. This says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. What's going on there? And I, again, these are not particularly where I'm headed. I want to get to verses 40 and 41. But I want to to bring this out to, to let us know that we're being intellectually consistent here. That we're being consistent with ourselves. These two verses seem to contradict what Peter said in 1 Peter 3. They seem to contradict the idea that you don't need to be baptized to be saved. However, in fact, they do not. And while it's not very clear as we look into this English translation, and this is why translations matter, the Greek makes it much more clear. The Greek, in fact, this phrase might be translated, Repent ye all, and each one who repents be baptized. Baptism is reflected as the natural next step in the lives of those who choose to accept the invitation of the gospel. You say, well, pastor, if I don't know Greek, how can I understand that? Well, you continue in the context because scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. So if we continue in the context, this is what we get in verses 40 and 41. And many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from the untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them 3,000 souls. First they gladly received his word. Then they were baptized. Following baptism, then they were added to the church. So the universal standard by which a person was called to be baptized was when they were ready to profess that they had gladly received his word. This becomes even more clear in Acts 8. Now, if you're not using a King James or New King James Bible, then Acts 8 verse 37 is going to be bracketed or removed, or footnoted, or something, and it's going to tell you it's not supposed to be in your Bible. But it is in our Bible, and it's very important. We read of an Ethiopian eunuch, and he's on his way back to Ethiopia, and he's coming to Ethiopia um, from the north, and he meets Philip. And Philip expounds to him the word of God. And we pick up in Acts 8, verse 35, where the Bible says this, Then Philip opened his mouth, 
and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Do you see the condition upon which he is allowed to be baptized here? If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What is the qualification for baptism? The eunuch says, what, uh, what, what should hinder me that I can be baptized? Philip says, if you believe, you may. He says, I believe. So who should be baptized? Well, first, that person should be a believer. Second, that baptized, believe, baptized believers ought to be the consensus in the church. And this is the one, this is the rub. This is where, where things have, have seemed to fall apart, at least in uh, even conservative evangelical circles today. What I mean by this is that baptism should not be seen by any means as optional in the church. Just because it's not a condition of your salvation does not mean it should be seen as optional. It is not, now don't get me wrong, it is not spiritually required to be saved. The thief on the cross said, Lord, remember me. He didn't get to get baptized. He was with the Lord that day in paradise. We, we, we've already, we spent time establishing that baptism and salvation are not one and the same. But, as we look at the New Testament, we find that baptism is a non-issue, not because it's not an issue, but because everyone got baptized. It was a non-issue because there was nobody that didn't get baptized in the church. That's why it was a non-issue. People say, well, why don't we have more teaching on it? Because it was a non-issue. Because everyone got baptized. So baptism was not taught as much because it was assumed in the church. As Paul rebuked the Corinthians for division in the church, this is what he told them in 1 Corinthians 1, 13-17. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any others. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now again, we see here quite clearly, Paul says, I came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. They're not the same, right? Very clear. But, he doesn't say here, some of you were baptized. He doesn't say, those of you that chose to get baptized. He says, were you baptized in the name of Christ? I didn't baptize you, some other people baptized you, but everyone got baptized. They did. All throughout the early church, baptism is reflected as the natural next step to those who are ready to publicly identify with Christ and serve Him visibly. Peter's exhortation to the crowd in Acts 2, get baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, get baptized. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, you are all baptized. My favorite account, which tells us just how important baptism was to the early church, is found in Acts 9. Saul is on the road to Damascus. And as he's on the road to Damascus, the Lord confronts him. Says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul humbles himself before the Lord that day. And he's blinded. And he's led to the city blind. And the Bible tells us in verse 9 that he was blind in the city for three days. And during that time, he didn't eat and he didn't drink. For those three days, he didn't eat and he didn't drink. We pick up uh, Acts 9, it says, And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat or drink. And we pick up in verse 18. 
after uh, Ananias comes and and um, gives him back his sight, says, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Do you notice the order of events that took place here? Saul, having received Christ, having recognized Christ to be Messiah, having not eaten for three days and, and, and not drank for three days or three nights, when he see, receives his sight, the order of events is he got up, he got baptized, then he ate some food. See how important it was to him? How important it was that he publicly identify, that he publicly associate with Christ? It matters so much to him because it matters to Christ. So much, in fact, it matters to Christ that it's in his great commission. The final commission to his church. What does he say? Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That's the command. Go and teach. Make disciples is what that means. This is how they're to do it. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost and teaching them to observe all things. Go and make disciples and after you have found those that want to be a part of Christ, baptize them and make disciples out of them. Teach them how to obey. That's what Christ called us to do. That's what Christ called the church to do. Do you think baptism is important to God? I do. So who should be baptized? Every believer who's ready to make a public profession of faith in Christ ought to be baptized. And it grieves me that this is a real struggle today. I know that, that there's people that, that have learned other things and believe other things, but it is such a struggle today. We've lost at least three good families that have come and gone because of this issue alone particularly because they don't like the fact that we withhold communion from those that have not been baptized. And they don't think that that's right. And I agree that there's not one place in the Bible where it explicitly says it. Why? Because everyone was baptized. Everyone was baptized. It was a non-issue. It was a non-issue. And I'm fine if a church chooses not to do that. I'm not saying that that that's, that's, that's wrong. But I don't believe what we're doing is wrong either. Because baptism is so important in the New Testament. Who should be baptized? Every believer. The next big question then. When should they be baptized? And this one is pretty clear scripturally. But I do temper this with my own opinion. And you can feel free to agree with me or not on this one. In many times and cultures, salvation and baptism are effectively the same event. If you ask Dee and, and Miss Andrea, baptism and salvation in Haitian culture and in many other cultures are effectively the same event. When you, when you ask certain people in certain cultures, when did you get saved, they'll talk about their baptism. That's not a wrong thing. Because baptism and, and salvation, baptism and the moment of belief, when you come forward to, to accept Christ, you get baptized. And that's not a wrong thing. A person accepts the gospel, they immediately get baptized, so that when you ask them of their salvation, they say, well, I was baptized on this date. That's, that's, culturally, there are many cultures where to take that step of getting baptized is such a big step. Such an important step, and we'll discuss why in just a moment, that, that they, they mesh the two. And that's not necessarily wrong for many cultures. But I don't know that it's necessarily right for our culture. And the reason why is because of how Western Christianity is today. The gospel has been so muddied today. 
And there, and see, in many cultures, to be baptized is a dramatic and important event that can actually cause problems for you. In our culture, baptism is often a fad. It's something that you do. You get carried away with friends and or a bunch of people doing it, and so you want to do it too because you don't want to be left out. And so we need to be careful in our culture with a gospel that has been so muddied that the profession is genuine and that the desire to, to take the next step is in fact genuine. So there are places in the world where baptism can be a real dangerous thing. Just two weeks ago I received an email from a ministry called Voices, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, excuse me. And in that email, the, the email was entitled, The Dangerous Act of Baptism. And it talks about a woman in the Middle East named Nazira who accepted Christ after her husband accepted Christ. And after studying the Bible, they, through the study of their Bible, realized that they should be baptized. And so they went and they got baptized. And those pictures of, and there were pictures of their baptism that made it to the Muslim Brotherhood. And so now they have a death mark on their heads. It was fine while their faith was secret. But when they went forward to get baptized, that's when things get tough. And you know what? That's the way it is in many cultures. Remember the Haas family coming from Cambodia. I asked him about it. He said, yeah, it's not so much a big deal when they say, when they go up to their family and say, I've accepted Christ. But when they get baptized and they have that public profession, that visible, evident cutting off of the old and committing to something new, that's when you lose your family. That's when you lose your job. That's where you're, when you're disowned. That's when your community won't talk with you anymore. That's when you can no longer buy and sell. When the evidence, when the external rite of baptism takes place. But you know what? God wants us to be willing to accept that for him, doesn't he? God wants us to be willing to take up that cross and follow him. So in a culture like the United States, where baptism is no big deal, for many, not for everyone, there are still pockets even of of culture in the United States, depending on denominational background and such, where uh, for for many in Catholic and Lutheran faith, if, if you get baptized after salvation, people see it as a, renouncing of your church and and it can it can be difficult on those families as well but for the mainstream there's just not a lot to it anymore people don't preach on it they don't teach on it they don't know why it's important they don't think it's important it's not really a big deal but it is and so my opinion and remember this is just my opinion is that it might be prudent to wait until we have some assurance, some fruit, by which we know that there's a genuine profession and a genuine desire to associate with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's just opinion. But this is what baptism symbolizes. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. You'll hear me say it as I'm putting the young people under the water today. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. We are associating with the burial of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. When we, when we partake in communion, we're remembering his, his suffering, his death. When we get baptized, we're remembering his burial and we're associating with his burial and his resurrection. And so, there is benefit, I believe, in Western culture to waiting to associate with some fruit before we take that step. Waiting to associate with understanding before we take that step. Now, this is my opinion. 
And the reason why I say this is my opinion, because that's not really what we see in the New Testament. And again, the New Testament was a different time. Things were much more dangerous. To get baptized was symbolically significantly more significant. And so it's hard to necessarily parallel cultures. But as we look into the New Testament, what we see is when a person got saved, they got baptized. They got saved, they got baptized, they got added to the church, and they started serving. And they started working. And they started doing. And I have an example here, which I'm going to skip for the sake of time. Uh, but the, the example was of Simon the Sorcerer. And Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 believes, gets baptized, and then as he confronts Peter, he asks Peter to buy the ability to give people the Holy Ghost. And Peter says, your money perish with you. You, you're, you have no um, part in this matter. Some people believe that Simon was not a believer. Uh, perhaps that or perhaps he was just ignorant. One way or another, he believed, he got baptized, but he still had some major issues. It had to be worked through. But the church baptized him. He came forward and they did it. Even if perhaps there was a risk of error. Who should be baptized? All believers. When should they be baptized? Well, probably, in my opinion, Western culture, as soon as they're ready to publicly associate with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they bear the fruit of salvation. Uh, Biblically speaking, I don't know that, that biblically we can defend withholding from somebody who truly wants to get baptized uh, the privilege of doing so. Finally, how should we be baptized? Well, as far as the scriptures are concerned, immersion. All the way under the water and all the way out. There's no example, not one in the Bible, of anything other than immersion. There's no example in the Bible of any infant being baptized. In Acts 8, we read of the Ethiopian eunuch, and we already said that he came out of the water. That means he went under. In Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Ghost descends like a dove, and the the voice of the Lord comes and says, Thou art my beloved Son, he's coming out of the water when the, the Spirit descends like a dove. The Ethiopian eunuch says, There's water here, so why can't I get baptized? When John went to baptize, he went to a place where there was much water. In every instance of baptism in the New Testament, we find that it was by immersion. And this should be expected when we recognize what the picture of baptism represents, right? Pouring water over someone's head does not really do a great job of fulfilling a picture of being buried and rising again. Sprinkling someone in the face does not really do a good job of fulfilling the picture of being buried and rising again. But putting someone completely under the water and bringing them back up does exactly that. That's, that, that's exactly what the picture is. And that's what we said from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. This is the picture. This is what we're manifesting here. So perhaps we can see why, why these other ways mar the picture, why we choose to go the way that we go. Now again, baptism is a symbol, right? It's symbolic. It's representative. It's a, it's a sign of the faith that we already have. Which means if a man is on his deathbed and he's accepted Christ and he wants to get baptized and you can't lift him out and dunk him in a pool, do it some other way. That's fine. That, that, that's fine. We're not, we're not going to, to uh, split hairs here. But generally speaking, why do we do it the way we do it? Why, why, why do we function the way we function? Why is baptism important to us? Why do we ask that you not take communion if you haven't been baptized? Well, because we believe it's important. Because we believe that's what the Bible says. And I think we can defend that that's what the Bible says. Why do we put people all the way underwater and bring them up? Well, because that's what the Bible says. And we can defend that that's what the Bible says. And so if we... 
We just want, we just want to do what the Bible says. And that's what we're trying to do. So, what have we learned today? First, water baptism does not and cannot save. As I mentioned, there are cultures where the events are almost one and the same. That's fine. As long as there's a clear understanding that it's not the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God that saves. In our culture, it's not that way, and we need to be careful to maintain that distinction. If salvation is by grace through faith, then it cannot include work, it cannot include merit, it cannot include effort, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Second, we've learned that water baptism is for believers. If you're not a believer, then you have no part by which to enter into the kingdom. You, you, you are not a part of the kingdom. You, you are not a part of Christ's family. You are not a child of God. And so the idea of a symbolic rite that places you into it makes no sense until you're a believer. Makes no sense until you've entered into the family of God. Now, if a person wants to baptize their children as a dedication, and they say it's just a dedication, it, it, it can confuse people, so I would not recommend it just because of what it, how it can, how it can confuse, muddy the waters, but it's okay. In our circles, we do baby dedications all the time, right? Parents get up and they stand here and they give the baby a little Bible that they're gonna chew on and, and then the parents stand up here while, while some pastor prays over them. It's the same thing. It's a dedication of that family and that church to raise the child. If, if, if parents would, would, would baptize their children for that reason, it's not wrong. It can just be, it can, it, it can cause a dangerous muddying of the waters, right? Which is why we, we don't do it. But it's not necessarily a wrong thing. But baptism, water baptism, believer's baptism, the baptism that the Bible teaches is a baptism after salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. Consequently, if you're here today and you're not a part of, uh, of Christ, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never come to that place in your life where you know that you're a sinner, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you have accepted without any work, without any effort, Jesus Christ's gift on the cross for you. If, as I was preaching today about salvation being by grace alone and without merit and without effort and without obligation, you said, wow, my whole life I've been trying to earn my way to God. I've been trying to be good enough to get to God. I've been trying to, 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 um, I've been trusting in my baptism or I've been trusting in church membership or I've been trusting in the money I've given to charities to get to God. And you realize today that salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith. Would you today cry out unto the Lord and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm on my way to hell. I know that there is a hell, that it is a, a, a place of conscious torment, but that Jesus Christ paid the debt for my sins. He did for me what I cannot do for myself. And would you today receive that gift by grace through faith so that God can not impute, not reckon to you your sin, but can rather impute righteousness upon you? Water baptism is for believers. Third, Water baptism is biblically important. Very few churches teach about baptism anymore. For years, it didn't need to be taught because it was just assumed. It was implicit. It's no longer the case, and people don't count it as important. It is important to God. God wants His people to follow Him in obedience by being baptized. It was in His Great Commission. We see it exemplified all throughout the New Testament. Those who followed the Lord got baptized. He wants his people to publicly identify with him, to be willing to publicly identify with him, with his burial, with his resurrection. Just because it's not dangerous for us today, and thank the Lord for that, 
It's dangerous for a lot of people around the world. That email was just two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. People are being killed all the time in the Middle East for stepping out and getting baptized. For stepping out and professing Christ. Churches are being burned. Families are being torn apart. It's not dangerous for us, but that shouldn't mean we don't do it. It should just mean we are so much more thankful for what we have in this country. And it ought to mean that we pray fervently that God will preserve it for us. It's biblically important. God wants his people to identify with his burial and resurrection through baptism just as much as he wants his people to identify with his death through communion. Finally, water baptism is biblically by immersion. It's what we see. It's what the New Testament teaches. And it's why we do it this way is because this is what the New Testament shows us. We really don't have any more than what God has given to us. And the Bible says he's given to us everything we need. So if this is what the Bible shows, then that's what we're going to do. After our service today, we're going to witness two baptisms. Lord willing, next month we'll witness several more. These two young people have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have clear testimonies of salvation. They're eager to join the fellowship of those from every generation who have publicly declared their willingness to take up their cross and to follow Christ. It's a right thing. It's a godly thing. It's an obedient thing. And today we have the privilege to rejoice with them over their desire to publicly claim Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. And if you need to be baptized, I would encourage you to take the step as well. If you've never been baptized, if you've been saved, but you've never known or never really taken the time, may I encourage you to go through the process, whether it be here, talk with me about it, or whether it be at at your local church. Let's make sure that what God says is important is important to us as well. And take care of these things that the Bible expresses to us. Let's close in prayer.